Hey, everybody. Welcome to Artist Soapbox. Artist Soapbox is a podcast featuring triangle area artists talking about their work, their plans, their manifestos. I am your host, Tamara Kassane. 2019 has been a year-long celebration honoring Durham, North Carolina's 150th anniversary. Artist Soapbox received a grant from Durham 150 in support of the city of Durham's sesquicentennial commemoration. This episode is one of three Durham 150 Artist Spotlights in which I interview a few of the many brilliant artists living here. I love this city. And if you've spent any time in Durham, you know that we are spoiled for choice when it comes to the multitude of amazing creatives making art here. Happy birthday, Durham. Thank you, Durham artists. Thank you for the grant, Durham 150. And listeners, don't forget to support local artists and help them and your community thrive. In a moment, I'm going to read a bio. But it won't do justice to the fullness and depth of Dale Wolf's experience and impact as an artist in the Triangle. How do I cram decades of multifaceted creative work into a few short sentences? I don't think I can. I will say, though, that Dale Wolf is one of my favorite people to watch on stage, to make art with, and just hang out with. They also taught me to juggle, which is no mean feat. Quite simply, Dale Wolf is a gift to our artistic community, and I was honored to have this conversation. In this episode, with good humor and great stories, Dale touches on physicality, baseball, identity, politics and performance, creating new work, being an independent artist, and making art in Durham since the 1970s. Dale Wolf moved to Durham, North Carolina in 1976 to start a mime company. Touch Mime Theater performed for 17 years to over half a million people in the Southeast. Dale Wolf is a writer, mime, performer, teacher, veteran of the North Carolina arts community, and recipient of the Indie Award for Excellence in the Arts in 1994. They work with local theater companies such as Little Green Pig, The Delta Boys, Man Bites Dog, Both Hands, Deep Dish, Common Ground, and Leviathan Theater. You can also hear Dale as a voice actor in Master Builder, an audio drama produced by Artist Soapbox. Dale has acted in films, industrial videos, voiceovers, and commercials, in addition to developing and performing two one-person shows, In the Outfield, and 50, Evolution of a Butch Lesbian. Enjoy the episode. Dale, thank you so much for being here. You are so welcome. I'm happy to be here. I'm excited to talk with you about a range of topics today. In our pre-interview phone conversation, you mentioned that growing up, you wanted to be an athlete Mm -hmm. and that theater was your second choice. (laughs) I don't know if I'd put it that way. (laughs) Talk a little bit about that. (laughs) I had to settle for my second choice. (laughs) When I was, I was really athletic. I was quite coordinated and what have you. And uh, I loved baseball. I played with my brothers in the backyard and things like that. But my brother was the only one allowed to play Little League Baseball. It wasn't available to those born in the female body. So I was a spectator to that, and he was not very good, frankly, I have to say. (laughs) I mean, he had one really good play, but for the most part, you know, 
he kind of went along with it, but I was like passionately into it. And uh, it just, there was a lot unavailable to girls at that time. And so I, you know, navigated my life in such a way that uh, I still remained athletic, but I found, I found theater and mime in particular and physical theater for sure uh, as a, as an, uh, a young adult. And so I pursued Things like juggling and things that I could use my skills in terms of my coordination for. And, uh, and that was great. Not only that, but I could also find, I found a way to communicate. Cause as a kid, I became rather quiet when things were pretty much denied to young girls back in those days. It, uh, it, I kind of kept going in a withdrawal sort of direction until I found a form of communication, which was silent, but mm. physical. Can you talk about that discovery? You were a young adult, you said, when you discovered mime. Was Mm -hmm. that the first form of theater that you embraced? Sort of. I did a lot of tech theater when I was in high school. You know, I was uh, had long hair, flannel shirts, covering up my body. It was an identity crisis or struggle, if you will, uh, because coming out was not an option at that time, really. There was not a whole lot of language vocabulary for what I was feeling. And so I, I kind of be, with, did a big, huge withdrawal during my growing up years. And so in high school, you know, you have a teacher every now and then that comes along who inspires you. And so I had a, a teacher as a senior. I think she was, I was a senior by that time. And I had been doing technical theater, but a couple of friends of mine just dragged me to an audition and said, you have got to audition. So I said, fine. <laughs> so I think my audition I don't remember what, I have no idea what I read, but I remember having the director ask me to sing Happy Birthday, and I thought, well, I know that. <laughs> I can do that. So I did, and I got cast, in a, and I was on stage for the first time ever, which was remarkable. And then when I went off to college, I wanted to, I went through a communications program, not a theater program per se. I took a theater intro class here and there, but found mime, not on the university campus, but off campus. And just went to a performance and was mesmerized by this company. And this was back in the mid-70s now, early 70s, mid-70s. And mime was, at the time, an amazingly popular form. People were doing it not only in the, in the streets, but they were also doing it in the theater as well. And so I saw a theatrical performance of this company from Florida and was completely mesmerized and went up to them afterwards, which was a big step for me as a somewhat of an introvert to approach these folks and say, I really like your stuff. And they said they invited me to their school in Florida. Mm -hmm. So I went uh, in Tallahassee, Florida and studied mime with them for a month where I uh, subsequently met my two future partners in mime, if you will, and studied with them again the following year. But this time it moved to Tampa. And during that summer, the three of us decided that we would want to form a company. And there was a lot of that going on at the time, too. And so we picked out, we sat outside with a road atlas. There is such a thing. <laughs> I remember those, do yes. You, do you? <laughs> we sat outside a, a laundromat with a road atlas and went through the East Coast and said, okay, let's get together in September because I was graduating that uh, spring. And uh, yeah, so we just went through the, the map and said, okay, we don't want to go here. We don't want to go to big cities because there's going to be a lot of competition for grant monies and, you know, things like that. So anybody ever been to Chapel Hill? I said, I never heard of Chapel Hill, which was embarrassing now, but not not at the time. So we just said, okay, let's meet in Chapel Hill in September, and which we did. 
And then we rented an apartment, got jobs, waiting tables, took the days that we had free to clear the furniture out. Well, there was no furniture, but (laughs) clear the the living room enough to to work on Mm -hmm. original material and started putting together and piecing together original mime sketches, if you will, and started doing little performances on the streets and then free shows at the libraries here in Durham. And that led to the form. I mean, it was the formation, the workings of the formation of the mime troupe called Touch Mime Theater. I understand the physicality and Mm -hmm. why you would be drawn to mime because you are a physical person and that is the foundation of your practice. Is there something else about mime that draws you in? Why? What's the magic? Oddly enough, I think the magic I attribute it to we have to go back in time now because I, as a child, I lost a parent at a very young age. And so this withdrawal started way before we started talking about this whole thing. And silence became my place. I became a very silent child for a long period of time, according to a particular family member who shall not be mentioned. <laughs> That's okay. <laughs> and and I was an observer. I observed life from that place of silence. I was not a very verbal kid. And so uh, I think that my attraction to mime is certainly based on my experience as a silent human being that goes back to childhood, frankly. Does that, does that answer your question? <laughs> yes, yes. Yeah. Well, it talks, it, you are describing why you're drawn to it. Yeah. I think there are a lot of misconceptions I do, about mime. Yeah, I think so too. I, I think, well, I, I'm drawn to it because even though you may be a silent human being, you can still communicate. And I think to me, there's a lot of that in my DNA is the is the desire to communicate and learn how to communicate better, not just for my own personal benefit, but to reach out and connect with people. Mm-hmm. And this form seemed to do that, whether it be in the street or in the theater or in a classroom. Yeah, it was a, a revelation for me to find this form. And consequently, I've used it my entire performance career. Mm-hmm. So you moved to this area in 76, mm-hmm. yep, to, and you formed Touch Mime Theater. When did you move from Chapel Hill to Durham? Was it shortly thereafter? Well, we actually lived in Durham. Okay. We lived on 15501, right behind Daryl's 1890, <laughs> which was this really tacky restaurant that people went to. And, oh, goodness, it was, we waited tables, you know, hosted, whatever, while we lived behind, within walking distance of this of this ridiculous place that we all worked at for a short period of time. So we actually lived in Durham, and then I've moved. I've lived in many places. I've lived in Hillsborough. I've lived in Chapel Hill. I've lived in Carborough. I live now in Durham again, so mm-hmm. I've moved around. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think I'm pretty settled where I am now. You're, you're, now you're in Durham. Yes. For good. I've been in Durham for quite a while. During the 17 years that Touch Mime Theater existed as a company, that's quite a time span. Sure is. But do you have a, a story or two that you could share that you still remember that was either transformative for you as a performer or you know, a moment when you felt a really profound connection with an audience member? I was not with the company for 17 years. I was with them for 11 years. I had to take a leave for two reasons. One is I was invited to go study up in Maine with one of my mentors, Tony Montanero. But the other reason was, is I was coming out. Mm as a gay person, a queer person, a lesbian at the time. And so I needed the time and I needed the space because 
Growing up during that time, there was, like I said before, there was no vocabulary. There was no language. There were very few role models in terms of what I was experiencing. And so I had to I had to go find my way. <laughs> and, and I did it in a very clever way, frankly, because I was still in the mime world coming at it from a very different perspective with different people in a very, quite frankly, a very supportive environment. Not that it wasn't supportive here at the time, but I just felt, I don't know, I just felt like I had to go. Sometimes we need to go to just, find ourselves. Yeah, exactly. Yes. Mm-hmm. I just needed to get out of here. So I did. Connecting with a particular audience member, I don't know that I ever have. I mean, I've connected with audiences mm-hmm. for sure. And I think I have influenced certain folks through the work. Like I know uh, of students of mine who have gone on to, to study theater or to that kind of thing. And so uh, I can't say any one of those. I mean, they're all incredibly beautiful things that have happened because mm-hmm. of the work. And, and sometimes you just don't really know how you affect people. And, and most of the time you don't. Right. But if somebody, well, somebody did come up to me one time. They were, they said, oh, I'm an attorney now. And I took you around my elementary school when I was, you know, when I was like, you know, 10 years old, whatever. So you don't know your impact. I don't know um, how impactful we've been, although I could tell that we were definitely successful at what we did because we used to have wonderful audiences who loved our work. So Mm. it was cool. It was very cool. So from the Mime Theater Company, you moved into some solo performance pieces in addition to all of the art that you're making in this area. And I really want to focus in on some of these solo pieces. The first one that I know of, you tell me if they were more previous to this, was In the Outfield. Mm. Yes. In the Outfield was developed with the Mime Company, actually. Mm. Originally, we worked on it together. I wrote the text for it with the help of a story puller named Stephen Kent, who's a wonderful, wonderful theater person in California. It was inspired by, listen, the term gay 90s in the 20th century really is, to me, a very, (laughs) it's a very good way to describe what was happening here locally and also nationally. There was a lot of theater being made by queer performers in the 90s. If you know the whole history of the NEA four, the Tim Millers and the and the Holly Hughes and the, that whole fiasco that happened with that went to the Supreme Court, et cetera, et cetera, around funding issues and not just funding issues, but issues of homophobia and what have mm. you that came up during that time and just queer theater that was happening at that time. In fact, Man Bites Dog did the Don't Ask, Don't Tell Theater Festival here in Durham a couple summers, which I participated in as well. In 1990, we had an opportunity to really shift politically the the conditions here in the state of North Carolina when Jesse Helms was running yet again for another Senate seat, uh, being reelected to another Senate term. And Harvey Gantt from Charlotte, the mayor of Charlotte, was running against him, an African-American man. And we worked tirelessly in this area to elect Harvey to that position. And it was an education because I learned a lot about politics. I learned a lot about elections at that time and how, how, corrupted they can be without seemingly being so obviously corrupted. Right. Like the power going out in the Democratic headquarters the day of the election here in Durham, or the machines breaking down one by one by one during that day. So it created waits to vote for, Mm -hmm. you know, people standing in line for four to five hours to vote. I mean, these the postcards that went out to predominantly black communities, threatening penalization if you voted out of your Precinct. I mean, there were all kinds of really strange little things like that that were going on here. Not to mention the advertising that Helms's uh, campaign put on the air to describe the gay community, to vilify us. 
And I, you know, I was insulted, but most of his stuff, it was aimed towards gay men because AIDS was happening and all that kind of thing. And, and I was like, well, darn, if you're going to insult the community, you might as well include the lesbians too, you know? So I got really pissed, <laughs> frankly. And I just said, you know, I, I, I was, it, that passion, that anger, that is what influenced me and, and fueled my desire to do something theatrically that would put a face on a story, a personal story of a young kid who just wanted to play baseball and couldn't and was put up and has had had to experience so many obstacles, not just not just through their athletic life or lack thereof, but also in, in terms of their own personal identity. And I just wanted to put a face on myself, myself out there and tell a story that hopefully would connect with other stories of people who came to see the work. And that was the challenge. The challenge is to make in the outfield translatable in some ways to find the common denominators that audience members can share with us as performers, as solo performers. I think that's the, one of the hardest things to do and not make it a therapy session and not make it a place of diatribe or I'm not going to say, the, well, I don't, I was going to use the word soapbox, but I don't yeah, know you can, but, it's okay. <laughs> but I'm not, it's not a, it's not a pejorative right. it, uh, when I use it in your terms. It was a trick. It was tricky to try and make it visually beautiful and entertaining, but also poignantly personal and important and funny. information and f yeah, and funny. Yeah. For, oh, for sure. Funny, mm -hmm. always funny. Funny is the best. So so we worked. We worked tirelessly, and we came up with a, a beautiful... It's a beautiful piece. It really is. You I, toured it pretty extensively, right? Uh, yeah, well, it would be nice to tour it even more extensively than I did, but I did. I took it to... There was a gay and lesbian theater festival in Atlanta I was at. I went to Johnson City, Tennessee with it, which was a challenge because we received some bomb threats in the box office. There were some threatening things that happened as a result of my putting this work out in the public forum which was really interesting because people had no idea what the work was about and yet felt threatened enough to write me letters. Before saying, they'd even seen before it. Before they'd even seen it and said, please don't do this. Your message is not a good message. Well, that reeks of homophobia, of course. Mm -hmm. And so it just fueled me even more to put it out there. So I did take it to a number of different places and, and performed it here at the NGLTF conference when it got moved from some other location where they lost their venue. And yeah, I, I got a chance to do it at a lot of different places in Charlotte. In Charlotte, whoa, 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 I did. I can't remember all the locations. Yeah, I, yeah. I did. A, I took it around. But it had a life. It had. It did. And then, and in addition to that, I have to say that I some some folks who saw the work, because like, I remember audition not auditioning, but showcasing it at some conferences where folks come to program their seasons and what have you. And I have had numerous people come up and say, "Well, I wish I could bring you to my community, but I just don't feel like I can." So that, again, fueled my desire to keep pushing this work mm. as far as I could. And so I did as much as I could. It was beautifully received for the most part. I have all kinds of beautiful handwritten notes from people, which are nice. What's an example of, of, of a note that you received that... I remember one quote <laughs> from a letter that somebody wrote me. They said, I brought my homophobic mother to see your show and she was not offended. <laughs> <laughs> that was great. That 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 sums it. I mean, see, see, yeah, see, it worked. Okay, yeah. So yeah. I did something good. Yeah, that was good. So anyway, that's uh, that's one example. And I had lots of people tell me that about parents that came out at certain times in their life and 
they were also into baseball. And it, it, there were lots of like confessional things that people said to me that were just so beautiful, mm-hmm. really, really beautiful. And so I knew it was I was on the right track. It sounds like you had a, a, a high degree of engagement, some negative, but some very positive. Mostly positive. Around this work. Sure. And I think that's what I'll speak for myself, but as an artist, that's what I yearn for is, is is for engagement mm-hmm. with my audience. Sure. And but I'm wondering about how what it was like to navigate this because I understand this political inspiration and the passion that you had to put your story out. But you are also sharing a personal journey and mm-hmm. a personal story, and it goes deep. Sure. How did you manage that kind of vulnerability? performance after performance? I felt supported. I had a community. I had sold out houses. There was not a lot of work to be seen in the popular culture realm. We weren't visible. We weren't being depicted in any kind of positive way. So to put out this kind of work, even if it was just for the gay community, which it wasn't. In fact, I was reaching over all kinds of boundaries. I was hoping to reach people to say, look, we're here. You know us. Believe me, you know us. We're not, there's, this isn't new. This is what it feels like to be alone. This is what it feels like to be lonely. This is what it feels like to not fit. This is what it feels like to be in the outfield where it's far away from the infield where you don't get to participate. That's not true in baseball, but but I <laughs> use it. has been my experience in the but, outfield yeah, you get, <laughs> of you baseball. Get, you get put in the outfield, because, <laughs> right. especially right field, right? You get put in the right field because the ball doesn't go out there very often and you don't have to deal. Right. That's, you can look at the clouds. Right, and... <laughs> right, right. But I, I was a good player, so right. I could play almost any position, let me tell you. But it's, yeah, no, it's, a, it, but using that as a metaphor, frankly, was the vehicle that we used to navigate the story itself and add elements of personal experience, whether it be with my family and losing my mother and, and, and then revisiting her and writing her a letter, talking about what it meant to be quiet and have crushes on girls. I wrote, I mean, there's music in there, there's, there's song in the show mm-hmm. that talks about uh, having a crush on the girl next door. I think people have had crushes. Everybody has, I hope. Mm. And so these kinds of common denominator kinds of themes are the things that I wanted to highlight in some way, shape, or form via my personal experience. And so I think when you can successfully do that through metaphor, and then, of course, the embellishments of costume and lighting and puppetry and theatrical elements that we used, I think that we put together a piece that was really, really accessible Mm -hmm. and beautiful Mm -hmm. at the same time. And that is art. To me, that's art. It's not soup, like Lily Tomlin might say. Right. Right. Love Lily Tomlin. Yeah, me too. I've seen In the Outfield on a DVD, but I was actually able to see another of your solo pieces in person ah. at Man Bites Dog Theater. And that piece was titled 50, Evolution of a Butch Lesbian. Yes. And you performed that piece in 2004. Right. So Why? It was a birthday gift to myself, really. I thought, well, okay, here we go. <laughs> 50 seems like a really whole seems number. Seems significant, yeah. It seems like a good old, whole, <laughs> it was one of those whole numbers, you know. So I thought, okay, well, I'm going to gift myself a show. And so I started putting together this show. And, of course, Ed and Jeff were very supportive. And we had a very lovely run of it, more than one, I think. I forget how many times I did it, but it was a fun piece to put together. I had collected a bunch of writing that I was doing over a course of time and 
once again, I kind of used the year that I was born as a starting point. Now, the beginning of the show started with like a, I was so proud of myself to teach myself how to use PowerPoint and put together like a PowerPoint presentation with sound, which I did myself, and to illustrate what I was born into. It was kind of like, it was kind of like part two of my life. You know, I feel mm -hmm. like I better come up with a part three. For mm -hmm. some reason, I feel like I need to do one more solo show. We're ready. Are you ready? Yeah. Well, I, we can talk about that. <laughs> <laughs> we should talk about that, yeah. actually. Giving it context, 1954 was the year I was born. There was all kinds of stuff going on. There was issues in Guatemala. There was the Giants winning the World Series, which kind of sucked since I was a Dodger fan. <laughs> and, and, you know, there were all kinds of things happened during that time. And I said, I just wanted to set the table, if you will, and then dive into a bunch of different, really actually eclectic sketches that I had written that were not necessarily connected, but put in a way that I think were entertaining and fun for the audience to see. Once again, going in the direction of trying to find things that we have in common. Mm. One of the things, uh, there was a sketch about, this is funny because it relates, actually it relates now. There was a piece that I wrote about healthcare because as an artist, as many of us lived through my when I lived through my younger years I didn't have health insurance during any of that time well there was one year that I did when I well three years when I was in television but that was a long time ago too anyway but I didn't have health insurance at the time and so when and if I needed to have any kind of health care or access health care I needed to know up front what it's going to cost me because we know that it's not cheap right so I did this whole piece that I wrote about finding out what it costs to have a colonoscopy, because when you're 50 years old, you're expected to have your first colonoscopy, yes. which to this day I have not had, but even though I'm what I could. But you get a lot of invitations for that. I've that I know, right? So this is like, what is this? So, so I wrote this thing about that, and that's what that was about. And I also, 50 was a time, too, where I felt like I knew a lot of things, and I was also in the process of healing still from a lot of things. And so to me, it felt like a good time to do another piece, again, derived from my personal experience and my personal understanding of what's going on around us right. and what I've learned from, from all those years accumulated to that point. And what did you feel like you knew at that time? And even if it has changed since that time, what were you pretty confident that you, that you understood and wanted to share? Well, I certainly understood my sexuality. And I found community here. I oftentimes refer to myself as a northern Jew, but a southern dyke. But I don't even refer to myself that way anymore. <laughs> it's mm -hmm. a, actually, there's different language now, so there's lots of ways to refer to yourself, which we could probably talk about. I just felt like I knew myself. I felt much more grounded. I certainly didn't feel complete, necessarily, because I feel like I'm always learning more about who I am and how I, how I want to express myself. But at, at that point, I felt like Healing had occurred to a point which really brought me some sense of peace about who I was and how I was able to contribute to the community, which was really important to me. Mm. I hope that was reflected in that piece. I think it was. It was wonderful. And you were a rock star up there. I, I have very fond memories of that. Beautiful. Yeah. Beautiful. In the intervening years since yes. 50, with yes. an exclamation point, yes, 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 uh, yes. one of the things I respect so much about you, and there are many things... But one of those things is that you continue to negotiate your identity and to move with it as you evolve as an artist and as a human. And I wonder if you would be willing to talk about, even since that 50 piece, how your identity has 
evolved mm -hmm. and how that is reflected in your name. Beautiful. Well, a lot. <laughs> in summary. It's been 15 years since yeah. I was 50, so now it's, you know, I'm on Medicare, man. You know, oh, it's, uh, yeah. Well, oddly enough, it's taken me this long. This is like, okay, there's a, there's a story that goes along. When I was a kid, my uh, my dad remarried, and I was in a blended family, if you will, sort of like we used to kid ourselves like we were the Brady Bunch, which probably more like the Adams family or some whatever. Anyway, they, uh, my stepsister, my stepsister and I had the exact same name. And when my parents got married, my stepmother and my father, my stepmother took my father's last name. So there was Lori Wolf, which was me, I thought. And then there was Lori Wolf, my stepsister. It was like, whoa, yeah. that lasted for, th for 13 years. And so we traveled through school together. And uh, that was interesting because at times I'd be called to the office. My, my stepsister was not exactly the most cooperative person in the school. And so she would be down in the office often. And oftentimes I would be called to go down to the <laughs> office on her behalf. And I would say, you know, I think you want to talk to my sister, you know, and she say, well, what's your sister's name? I say, Lori Wolf. They know what's your sister's name? Lori Wolf. And they just look at me like I was crazy. And I said, bye, I'm going back to class. And so I would leave. And the, and the, psychologist, the psychologist who once called me down because my sister was, all, again, in some sort of who knows what. And the... <laughs> Can I say these things? Of course. Okay, good. Because the psychologist said to me, "What do you mean you want my sister? I think you want my. I think you want to talk to my sister. Her name is Lori Wolf. I'm not crazy, you know. I mean, I. So the guy looks at my records and he looked her up actually, and looked at both these pieces of paper and said, "Shit on a stick." <gasps> I'll never forget that. <laughs> And I said, he said, you can go back to class now. <laughs> it's like, okay. Some validation yeah, of yeah, the yeah. situation. Not like that, but my yeah. family my family had a habit of, we had nicknames as a result, because you know how your parents call you, yes. call you with certain tones of voice and things like that. So what they did with my name was to take my first name and my middle name and put them together. So I was referred to as Lori Dale, and I just like would cringe every time I heard that expression, my name being said out loud. So I, I, I didn't like my name. For the longest time, I didn't like it until, until the trans community became as visible as it is now, and the language became so much more expansive in terms of how we can identify gender-wise, sexuality-wise, just identity in general. And I did a fair amount of work sporadically over the course of these years with the queer youth community. And so the young folks have been coming up with all these incredible ways of expressing themselves. And as a witness to that, I stepped back and said, now, wait a minute. So when I turned 60, granted, now it took me till then that I figured out, you know, the name Dale was given to me as a tribute to my great grandmother, who I didn't know. Her name was Dora. And in the Jewish tradition is to take the first letter of somebody's name and create a name for a child. And so my great grandmother was Dora, and that's where Dale came from. And I thought, oh, well, I certainly can't not like that name. And frankly, by itself, it's a gender-full name. It is full of gender, all gender. So I said, okay, I'm going to set Lori aside. And not that I, I didn't go into some legal thing about it, but I just said, okay, I'm going to ask my friends and family to 
refer to me as stale. Mm. And so that's where that came from, really. It's just another one of those things, because I'm feeling rather... I heard another term that a young person said to me that they were toying with the idea of, of being transmasculine, and that's kind of how I feel. I mean, I thought that really resonated for me, that I feel like a transmasculine person. Not that I'm in the wrong body or feel like I want to go through a transition. I don't feel that so much as I feel more masculine in my sensibilities, in my self-expression, in my mm-hmm. physical expression of myself through as I walk through the world. So that's kind of where that evolved to. Mm. So far, so far, so far, (laughs) so far, there's more to go, I'm sure. I have two questions that I would like to ask that I'm sure will lead to other questions. One is about how Durham specifically has changed over time, but I want to make sure that we get to piggyback on what you were just talking about. I want to make sure that we get to this future piece you're going to make, or Ah. if you could snap your fingers and make a piece, what that would be like. So let's start with the Durham, and then we'll wrap up with the performance piece. So you have been a part of this community for many, many years, and when you started, it was very different than what it is right now. What are your reflections on how how Durham specifically has changed over these years? Whoa. Wow. Wow. There, there are good things, and of course, there are things that are challenging. I think one of the things that I've been mourning lately is the are the disappearance of some of the venues that we've performed in. You and I both, mm-hmm. actually, from Common Ground Theater to now Man Bites Dog, Deep Dish, and both hands. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, there are a lot of things that have come and gone, which is the nature of things anyway. What I worry about in terms of that, in, and this kind of piggybacks onto the whole notion of how Durham has changed, is that that it's it's become harder, I think, to do what we do and do what we have done. When I first moved here, I mean, I told you I lived with my f- partners and we worked and the cost of living, I guess, is really the way to put it. And it, we could go into the global sense. It's big. It's a big question to right. talk about the differences in Durham because it's not just Durham. It's happening on a bigger scale. And so the gentrification of certain neighborhoods is pushing people out and the fact that all these folks are coming from different places who have absolutely no concept of of what Durham is like, what it's been like, where it's come from, what the history is. If I see another business that uses the name Bull City, I'm going to scream. (laughs) (laughs) It just, to me, it indicates somebody doesn't really ain't from around here. Mm. You know what I mean? And uh, so it's, (laughs) but uh, no, I'm just kidding. Uh, I'm not kidding, but I, it's sort of it's sort of symbolic, really. Right, it's just right. really, I don't mean to be pejorative with it, but it's just symbolic of how people are coming here from places without a whole lot of knowledge about what it's like here and what it's been like here. And so the so cost of living is a huge thing, especially for artists who are struggling to piece it together and don't have the, you know, the, the regular paycheck every two weeks or whatever it is. And it's not as affordable, I think. It's hard. I mean, I know for myself, I have a little business, I have a little gardening business that I that I rely on for steady income, which I love. That's another one of my passions is to get into the earth. And so I do that, which I totally enjoy, but it's also, it also takes a lot of time and it takes its toll on my body as well. And so it's, especially as I, as I ripen and age gracefully, it's changed a lot, mm-hmm. I think for us. And consequently not having these venues with these venues going away could be a little scary because again, space is, expensive. Time is expensive. Scheduling is is hard. It feels harder to make work 
these days. And sometimes I feel like it's in an accelerated pace that is not how I like to work necessarily. I like to, I like to take the time. I like to go deeper. I like, I love rehearsal. I love inventing. I love going back and forth and rehashing. And yeah, I just like the, I like going deep into the work. And so I find that that's, I don't see it. Maybe, maybe maybe I'm just not in the right place, but I'm not seeing seeing it happen as, as I had seen it in the past. Right, right. Yes, things feel much faster and much more difficult to me. And I don't know if that's because of where I am in my life, but I feel like there's a lot, there's a lot more pressure. There are fewer resources and it's harder to get the attention of the community compared to 25 years ago. It's bigger. I mean, it's bigger. It's bigger. I mean, I think Durham doubled in size. I think it's on schedule to double in size for the second time Mm -hmm. since I've been here. Yeah. In terms of population. Yeah. Seriously, I think that's true. So, yes, getting an audience is challenging. Yeah. And I'm not the best social media person. I'm not really a big participant. I have accounts on some of these places, but I'm not really... I don't trust. I'm not liking the internet kind of thing right now myself. It, um, I think it can potentially be better, but I think that it's been co-opted by the advertising world, and it's just just, just too much of that stuff being blipped into my living room, and I'm just not willing to have that kind of bombardment in my life. I just don't want it. I mean, I want to know what's going on. Like if I go to Facebook, for example, I'll click on events and see what my colleagues are doing. Right. I love that. That's all I need. I don't need all this other garbage, but I do need to know what my colleagues are doing. Well, you also have always seemed to me like a face-to-face person, like a physically embodied, present person who operates in a relationship that is, you know, across the table from somebody or sitting next to someone. And so that that seems to be consistent with how you move in the world. Gone are the days when you can just drop in on somebody's house, you know. I used to do that. I used to show up and knock on somebody's door and say, hey, you guys are home. Let's, you know, hang out. (laughs) You know, now it's like, let me see what, let me get my smartphone out here and see where three weeks from now at four o'clock, maybe, you know, that kind of thing. (laughs) So is that going to be in your next, in your next piece? Maybe, maybe, because I have a lot to say about that. And the other thing that is really, frankly, on the top of my pile of things to think about is the survival of humanity, frankly. I mean, we are in danger. To quote this, I might do this before. I, <laughs> I was threatening to do this not long ago, but I, I never got around to it. But Dina Metzger wrote a poem, and there's a line in there that says, uh, How's it go? There are those who want to set fire to the world. We are in danger. Uh, there is only time to work slowly. There is no time not to love. That phrase, those phrases speak volumes to me. And so, I'm fearful for the world. I'm fearful for humanity surviving on this planet. I think the planet will go on just as as it always has. But I think sustainability here is a question, is a huge question mark. Not only that, but also nuclear annihilation. I mean, there's just a, a ton of violence going on right now, which is, it's not inexplicable. There's good explanations for why it's happening. And so I'm thinking a lot about that. And it's it's kind of hard to kind of hone in on how to, deal with that in a, in, a, in, a, in a 
creative, presentational, theatrical, if you will, kind of way. I think about death a lot. Consequently, I think about my own longevity. And I also told you I was in stoppage time, which (laughs) which, uh, for those soccer fans out there, you know what I mean. (laughs) But uh, I do think about that a lot. I have experienced quite a bit of loss in the last year, too. And I know you have as well. It's a real thing. And it kind of feels like the right thing to think about in terms of creating another work. The challenge, of course, is to think about it in a way that's still funny, that's still poignant, that still finds the common denominator, of course, that I always search for in the work. Right. So that it's not just me talking about my, you know, what I did last Tuesday, that it's something that you can connect to in a real profound way. And I've been, I've been drawing also, which is crazy. So that's been fun, too. There's always a creative thing happening in my household, something. If it's not my garden, my vegetable garden, it's something else. So I'm constantly feeling like I'm creating. It's not necessarily always in front of an audience, although there is this, the audience of spirit and there's the audience of whoever shows up at my dinner table or if I show up with a basket full of vegetables at your doorstep, that mm-hmm. kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So there's something creative happening all the time on Melbourne Street. <laughs> do you do you think of that when you are at home by yourself and you're drawing? Do you think of the audience of spirit around you consciously? Probably not. I'm such an intuitive person. I just it's probably on the simmer. Mm-hmm. It's in a simmering place. I think that that is part of the fuel. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it wells up. Sometimes it it's just there. Right. Yeah. And and the channels are all open. I think too. I I like to leave the channels open for things to come to me. Only good things. The only good things are invited. Everything else can just stay away. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I try and keep that kind of channel clear mm-hmm. for inspiration to come. And I, I it happens a lot actually because I don't necessarily know half the time what I'm drawing. For example, I don't know what it's going to be. I attribute it to the children inside me who are actually very active with their with their imaginations and they tell me what we're drawing. It's like, all right, I got that. Yeah. Okay, yeah. You want that to be green? Okay, it's going to be green. Oh, looks like a frog. Okay, good. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I'm increasingly interested in this idea of, and this is not an original idea, but it's just one that I am leaning into a lot more. Uh, these These relationships with other people, who are currently in my life, but also people who have been in my life Mm -hmm. and will be in my life Mm -hmm. and things, beings that aren't human and this really interesting web that I am more attuned to than I ever have before. And Mm -hmm. not in a questioning way, but more in an accepting way. Mm -hmm. It's like, okay, well, this is what I feel. And I feel that this kind of connection to... To things I can't even explain, as well as the things that I can explain. And it's okay that that's not a frightening thing to me. And it's not something that I resist as I did once when I was younger. Mm-hmm. I'm very interested in how that will grow the work that I make and share mm-hmm. with mm-hmm. the people around me and by myself. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. as, as we were just talking about earlier, it's, you know, when you are a solo artist in your room and you're making a thing, you aren't really a solo artist mm-hmm. in your room making a thing. That's true. You know, and that is for someone like myself who 
desperately needs an audience to feel whole, <laughs> which is not my best quality. That's all right. I always have that audience. Well, it's just, it's just, you know, you you actually always have that audience. Sure. You know, it's okay. Yeah. So you you can be an audience member. I can be an audience member to myself. Sure. Why not? Right. Absolutely. It's a beautiful idea. Absolutely. Is there anything else that you would like to cover before we wrap up? I know that we could talk for many hours about many things, but I want to make sure we get your things. I have to say that it's it's challenging to watch how we move through the world and are less than conscious about how we impact the planet. I know for myself, I try really hard to figure out how to live even smaller than I already do and how to impart that knowledge to others. I think sometimes we think we're doing the right thing. We're we're recycling, you know, we're doing that, but how many times do we get packages delivered to our home and how much of a carbon footprint has that left as a result? Mm-hmm. And what is convenience anyway? Are we participating in our lives? Do we really want someone to handle the peaches and tomatoes that show up in the box mm-hmm. at the doorstep? I don't. So these are the kinds of things I'm struggling with right now is how, to, how do we stop what we're doing and start doing something every day to make sure that humanity, if we want to be sustained here, what are we going to do about it? Mm. So, so that's the struggle that I have on a daily basis right now. Thank you so much for this conversation. You know I love you, and I respect you so much and appreciate the work that you do in our community. So thank you so much. You bet. Thank you. Hey friends, I'm excited to announce that our second full-length audio drama is in development. The New Colossus is an original adaptation of Anton Chekhov's classic play, The Seagull, and it's gonna be amazing! We have a cast, we have a team, we have a script and recording days, and we are rolling! I'm asking you... To support indie audio drama and artists, please support the creation and production of this new work by becoming a patron of Artist Soapbox at patreon.com slash artistsoapbox. Patrons at the $3 a month level and up will also receive the inside scoop on our creative process, including interviews, secret documents, and more. That link again is patreon.com slash artist soapbox, and I'll include it in the show notes. Your support makes a huge difference. Artist Soapbox has created nearly 100 hours of free content made available to listeners around the world. Please help us continue to make more. Thanks. Thanks.